This week on the show, we cover the Unix wars of old, what every IT person needs to know, part three, the packet filter. FreeBSD 12.3 is here and we covered the release notes, what's new. TrueNAS 13 has begun and we're looking what's coming this way. What Unix preboot environments looked like. Run Unix on microcontrollers with a PDP 11 emulator and more. This week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 436, Unix Standards Battle, recorded on the 29th of December 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. And you can visit our BSD Now Patreon if you want to support this show in various ways, so check it out. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. We're recording before, a little before the year ends uh, for stuff that's for the new year. And certainly we are looking back as well, not only to the previous years, but also to the Unix Wars in this first headline episode piece, the battle for standards over at Claris Systems blog. So this is yet another article they wrote for uh, BSD in general or the Unixes here and... Uh, they start with, uh, today we're used to all BSD and Unix systems being similar, at least internally. That hasn't always been the case. At one time, there was a little war between two factions for control of the soul of Unix. Today, we're going to take a look at the Unix wars. So, yeah, basically after the introduction of Unix in 1970, it started growing in popularity, especially in academia and research. And I mean, it didn't hurt that the U.S. government was also using it, but users were drawn to... Uh, drawn to it because of the promise of portability, which allowed it to be used in a wide range of platforms and have access to a growing number of applications. But if you're trying to build those applications, then it comes down to, you know, which Unix are you using and how do we customize it for that? And it used to be, you know, wild differences, not just different paths and so on, like we deal with porting software nowadays between different distros of Linux and, and the different BSDs. We're talking like the basics could be wildly different. Uh, but, you know, many of these benefits could not be found in the different versions of Unix. You know, vendors paid lip service. Uh, you know, they wanted other applications to work on their platform, but they didn't necessarily want their applications to work on other people's platforms. Right? They wanted to get you to switch from some other platform to theirs, but they once you were on theirs, they never wanted you to leave. And, you know, by 1991, there were 30 different commercial versions of Unix, uh, and each of them was quite different. And they were each designed not to work together. Software applications were written for one Unix variant and couldn't necessarily operate on other Unixes uh, without expensive and difficult modifications. And then, you know, that led to things like auto tools and those configure scripts that go in like, does your so-and-so.h support this feature? And does your compiler do that? And all this stuff, because it turned out every Unix was a bit different. This mess of incompatibility caused people to think twice before choosing Unix. After all, why invest money in new software and equipment that might not work if you used a slightly different version of Unix on the next machine and so on. This lack of a product standard produced the first major impediment to Unix's acceptance because end users incurred major costs and problems when trying to integrate their applications with the operating system. And of course, uh, as the classic XKCD goes, ah, there are too many standards. There are now N plus one standards. <laughs> uh, 
So seeing that it was hurting their bottom line, a number of companies joined forces to create a Unix standard. In 1984, Open Group for Unix Systems was formed, consisting of companies from around the world, including Bull, ICL, Siemens, Olivetti, and Nixdorf, uh, which informally became known as Bison, the first letter of each of those companies' names. Uh, and then Philips and Ericsson's joined the group shortly after, uh, and then they just shortened the name to X slash Open. Uh, so they decided to base their new Unix standard on what was included in AT&T's System 5. Um, this appears, uh, it appears that they made this choice uh, because they decided to run the risk of ex uh, exploitation by AT&T rather than IBM. <laughs> it's like, if we choose one of the big companies, we're going to get <laughs> exploited by them, but we'd rather it be AT&T than IBM. And so they published their first specification the X slash Open Portability Guide Issue 1 in 1985, which covered the basic operating system interfaces, and you know, to be you'd want to build yours the same uh, to be compatible. By 1987, a wrench was thrown in the group's plan when AT&T and Sun announced that they would join forces to pursue co-development of a standard Unix operating system based on AT&T's System 5 and the Berkeley BSD 4.2 and the graphical capabilities of Sun's SunOS. Each company had its own motives for creating this union. AT&T wanted to promote its operating system and lure more people to make software for the platform, and Sun wanted to promise their new Spark, uh, or to promote their new Spark chipset. Um, it also helped that AT&T purchased a sizable percentage of Sun at the time. Uh, but of course, not to be outdone, some other alliances sprung up. You know, a number of companies decided they had to do something about this new AT&T and Sun Alliance. So in 1998, representatives from Apollo, DEC, Gould Electronics, Hewlett-Packard, Honeywell Bull, Infocorp, MIPS, NCR, Silicon Graphics, Unisoft, and Unisys met at DEC's office uh, and discussed the issues. Initially, they called themselves the Hamilton Group because the DEC building was located on Hamilton Avenue. They requested a meeting uh, with a senior VP of AT&T's data systems division. Unfortunately, the meeting didn't have any positive results. Uh, so in May of 1988, the group announced the creation of the Open Software Foundation. This new foundation was created, uh, or would create its own Unix standard that didn't depend on AT&T's proprietary software. So unlike X slash Open, the OSF uh, planned to produce an operating system that uh, it could license to its members rather than uh, just function only as an advisory body, uh, body. And then things went from there and, and it gets all kinds of crazy, but definitely worth reading. Yeah, that's a great summary of the past. And it's kind of like those big names who were around the time they thought would never go away. Where are they today? Some of them are still around, but in a different capacity. So that's interesting looking back. And uh, this one, we're looking a bit forward uh, because we continue our series of OpenBSD from uh, Peter Henstein, what every IT person needs to know about OpenBSD. This is part three, that packet filter. So you can probably guess which one uh, is meant, but the article starts with functional, free, and secure by default. OpenBSD remains a crucial yet largely unacknowledged player in the open source field. The series aims to highlight the project signature, security features, 
and development practices. These raise a sharp focus on correct and secure code coupled with continuing code audit, as well as the project's role as a source of innovation in security practices and an upstream source for numerous widely used components, such as OpenSSH, PF, this is the highlight of this article, LibreSSL and others. So we covered part one and part two in previous BSD Now episodes. And this one uh, is the, I think the latest one, at least one for this episode. Um, so we mentioned PF here, the OpenBSD packet filter. Uh, Peter must confess that PF has been an important part of his life in various contexts since the early 2000s. Oh yes. Over the years, the things he has written have contributed to creating the popular but wrong perception that OpenBSD was primarily a firewall operating system. There are a lot of useful and fun features that turned up in or in connection with PF over the years and were pioneered by OpenBSD. Some features reported or imitated in other systems while others remain stubbornly OpenBSD only. And so that's why he will touch on some of his favorite PF and PF attached features in some random but almost chronological order. So first, beating up spammers with OpenBSD. SpamD since OpenBSD 3.3, that's been a while. So back then, when he started playing with OpenBSD in general and PF in particular, he was already responsible for the SMTP mail service for his colleagues. His gateways by then ran OpenBSD, while the mail server Rosalita, named after a Springsteen song, was not too badly uh, specced server running of FreeBSD with Exim as the mail transfer agent that fed the incoming messages to Spam Assassin and Clam AV, the uh, antivirus filter for content filtering before handing off to user mailboxes. So when it dawned on him that he could set up spam D, the spam deferral daemon on the intranet facing gateway to save load on the poor suffering Rosalita that was running hot with content filtering, he was quick to implement a setup that sucked in well-known block lists. So then he has a section about going great and trapping. So that's how he implemented the uh, spam receipt and also the, well, especially not forwarding it if he found it to be a... Uh, a valid spam message and so they keep trapped in their inbox without being uh, relayed and just answer to the to the sender ah, i'm slow today please wait a little bit longer and then next time he would are you are you ready ah no a little bit more a little more time needed and so they were uh, already in the spam trap or in the tar pit then there's a section on the brutes, the password gropers, and the state tracking options. If you run an SSH service or any kind of listening service with the option to log in, you will see some number of failed authentication attempts that generate noise in the logs. We've all been there. The password guessing, or as some of us say, password groping, turned out to be annoying enough that OpenBSD 3.6 current and later 3.7 introduced a set of features to use data that would be available in the state table to track the state of active connections. It would also act on limits you define, such as the number of connections from a single host over a set of number of seconds. And he provides a small uh, excerpt from his PF rule set, probably from one of his books. So that uh, if you go over the rate that's defined there, then you are blocked from uh, accessing SSH or this IP address. So then further down, we went to modern queuing. So that's an uh, extensions. OpenBSD had traffic shaping available in the alt queue subsystem since the early early days. Alt-Q was rolled into PF at some point, but the code was still marked experimental 15 years later after it was written, and most people who tried to use it in anger at the time found the syntax inelegant at best, infuriating or worse at most times. So Henning Brower took a keen interest in the problem and concluded that all the various traffic shaping algorithms were not needed. 
they could all, except one, be reduced to mere configuration options, either as setting priorities on a pass or a match rule, or as variations on the mother algorithm hierarchical fair service curve, or HFSC. So soon after, another not small diff was uh, making the rounds, and the patch was applied early in OpenBSD 5.5, and for the lifetime of that release, older eight old queue systems or setups were possible side by side with the new queuing system. And then he talks about a bit more about that. So you can do traffic shaping and decide, you know, which of your queues gets how much bandwidth of your total connectivity. And of course, in all between those, uh, he mentions his book of uh, PF, which is at that time was the uh, the third edition that got that needed for an update since PF got an update, he also needed to cover that in the new book. And so uh, PF and uh, the book of PF were uh, kind of intertwined in this way. Then there's a section on PF, uh, on flow, PFLow, uh, that offers the network insights uh, light version. Everybody who has been tasked with looking after a network has been a little curious about what moves around there at some point. At times, we will see situations where it's essential for troubleshooting purposes to see the traffic flows with data about endpoints, packets, and bytes transferred, protocols, and so forth. So uh, if you do not need to see the data itself, but rather the metadata, the NetFlow standard and its close cousin, IPFIX, offers just that. NetFlow tools existed as packages on OpenBSD already, but from OpenBSD 4.5, PF has the PFLOW state tracking option paired with the flea PFLOW virtual network interface, which together offers a full NetFlow sensor package. And so that's uh, what also went into PF and many more options. And so we highly recommend reading the whole article by Peter Hanstein about other features that went into PF. All right. And now we have the news is that FreeBSD 12.3 release has been out. So we should actually look at what's in there, right? So here are the release notes. So looking at what's new versus 12.2, obviously all the security erratas that came out uh, after 12.2 was released are, uh, while they were released as patches for 12.2, they're also included as fixes in 12.3, including all the errata notices. Um, yep, so that's all included. The one big change is a bunch updates to the uh, CA root system. So this is the uh, work Kyle Evans and I did to add the root certificate bundle to uh, the base system so that SSL will work out of the box. Um, and it now supports certificates marked with the distrust after entry. So we'll actually respect that uh, when a certificate, you know, has a uh, distrust after, which is a bit different than the expiration date. And it makes sure that it will do that. And they added the rc.final script, which will run after all user processes have terminated. Uh, so one cleanup thing or detach some drives or something after everything's done. Okay, that's good to have. Then lots of utilities got updates. Uh, auto mount uh, will now explicitly set the root path to slash before performing any automatic mounts. BECTL will now throw an error to prevent the creation of boot environments that have a space in name because that won't work properly. Uh, Beehive now supports large IOs uh, in its NVMe emulation. Uh, the CMP utility got a bunch of new flags to make it, uh, you know, flag compatible with the GNU version, uh, so that you won't have to install GNU CMP if you have a script or tool that depends on those flags. Uh, CPU set can now be used by a jail to modify the roots of child jails, uh, so you can control which CPUs the sub jails can use. 
the cron utility can now pull in user or class environment variables so that you don't have to respecify those in every cron tab entry. Uh, the daemon utility now has the capital H flag, allowing it to catch a sig hop and reopen the output file, making it coordinate with new syslog for log rotation. Uh, the diff utility now honors other flags uh, such as dash W and dash Q, which I think again is for compatibility. The elf CTL utility has received the dash L flag uh, to ignore unknown variables, allowing it to work across multiple versions of FreeBSD by ignoring features that are not supported um, by your version. And so I think else TTL is the one that's used to turn on and off uh, some of the security mitigations on a per binary basis, so that if a program doesn't work with some of the security settings turned up, you can just turn it down for that one program. Uh, ETC update got a bunch of uh, fixes as well as FreeBSD update. Um, the FS type utility will now properly detect XFAT uh, and show the label name. Gelly will no longer report an error when performing a resize to the same size as it currently is. Uh, so that if you're automating trying to resize something that won't fail when it actually succeeded or just didn't need to do anything. Uh, the grep utility also got some compatibility flags, dash W uh, if you're using dash X and so on. GrowFS can now function on rewrite mounted file systems. Uh, XREF, which is for uh, modules and their dependencies, will no longer error out if the directory specified by the dash D flag is not actually a directory, like a symlink. Uh, the mount utility now supports showing the width quotas uh, properly when you are listing the, the file systems that are mounted. Uh, and new syslog received a new uh, capital E flag to prevent rotation of empty log files. So if the log file is empty, instead of rotating it with a new version that just has the date, uh, you won't end up with a bunch of old log files with nothing in them. Uh, the package seven utility, so this is the bootstrap utility that just deals with bootstrapping and not, uh, you know, the first time you run it, it downloads package eight and uses it. Uh, it now supports the dash R flag to specify a different uh, repo to get the bootstrap from. Ah, nice. Uh, and package seven will also uh, use environment variables that are specified in package.com. Uh, the rc.d jail script has a keyword change to fix jails within jail support so that it will start those up properly. Um, RT soldd will now work with VLAN interfaces. Uh, the service command will now set the environment uh, of the daemon class before invoking the utilities so that you can control uh, things like the automatic nice level of services and so on. And TCP dump can now decode packets on the pfsync interface. Uh, so pfsync is if you're doing uh, carp to have a redundant routers, pfsync will synchronize the NAT state between them so that when the uh, secondary router takes over, it doesn't drop the currently open connections. Mm. Oh yeah, that's useful. Oh, and top received a slash uh, parameter from OpenBSD so that you can display processes that match specific string, like in VI or Vim, where you can search Yeah, so you can basically search top for any uh, commands that match uh, a search string, which is really interesting. Uh, they fixed a segmentation fault in the unzip command, uh, when a target archive contained buggy names um, and zgrep utility now properly prints this version when you run dash dash version 
And the WPL underscore CLI utility now has an action file event when an event has been passed in from a file, plus uh, some third-party utility got updates like awk, SHA-256, BC, LESS, LibArchive, OpenPAM, OpenSSL, SQLite, TCSH, Subversion, VI, uh, the time zone data, uh, and the unzip utility. Uh, the internal kernel API between the KRPC and NFSD modules has been updated. Uh, see the updating file for details on that change. And the POWF function received a fix to prevent incorrect results uh, with X near one and Y much larger than one in the test kit imported from NetBSD kind of pointed that one out. Uh, one of the other big ones is, so IPFW has DummyNet, uh, which allows you to uh, do traffic shaping and, and link simulation stuff. Um, the dummy net parts of that have now been split out into their own tool, DNCTL, uh, because eventually uh, that'll actually be supported by PF as well. And so when dummy net becomes common between IPFW and PF, it makes sense that it has its own configuration utility rather than you having to use IPFW to configure dummy net even though you're using it in PF or something. It's cool. Uh, the open crypto module now has the kern.crypto sysctl node with a bunch of stuff under it. There's also the new debug.uma reclaim uh, sysctl, which is, I think, work that Alexander Moten did about uh, cleaning up um, basically slack in the UMA uh, memory caches to make sure that, for example, if ZFS gives back a whole bunch of memory that the kernel actually returns it as free memory rather than uh, it sitting there as wired UMA memory, but even if ZFS isn't using it kind of thing. Oh, good. Uh, new PCI IDs have been added for the AS Media um, PCIe 3 AHCI controller and the Intel Gemini-like I2C controllers. Uh, so those will be detected automatically now. And uh, the generic kernel for AMD64 automatically includes compat underscore Linux KPI and the MLX5EN device driver. Uh, so you no longer have to manually load the driver for the Mellanox cards. It'll be built into generic. Uh, plus lots of device driver updates, including the Microtech 10 and 25 gig network cards, uh, AMD temperature sensor for Zen 3 machines, cam driver has a quick unplug and replug SCSI uh, fix so that it doesn't detect uh, the devices doesn't finish being removed before it was re-added kind of thing. A uh, bunch of fixes for the Intel network driver, updates for the Amazon Elastic Networking driver, uh, lots of other driver fixes for Intel 10, 25, and 40 gig. IWM now supports the Intel Killer Wireless AC 1550i, the MS-DOS FS driver, has received a bunch of fixes for MS-DOSFS suspension, uh, NetGraph got updates, NVDIM, a CPI driver, now exports health information via sysctl, the NVMe driver got some work, PF got several bug fixes and updates, uh, resource control uh, driver now supports throttling uh, resource usage to zero for rate-based resources that support throttling. Uh, these resources will respect the duration set by the throttle max and so on. Uh, some more wireless updates, and the TCP protocol will now tolerate the missing timestamps via the sysctl tolerate missing TS. So you can enable that if you have a need of that. 
and the VLAN interfaces can now support Alt-Q. Uh, in general storage, there's lots of fixes for NFS v4.1 and 4.2. A fix for handling of embedded symbolic links in UFS and FFS has been merged in. Uh, the bootloader got a bunch of support for booting an OS from a memory disk and uh, supporting ZFS pools uh, without features and uh, accepting the bookmark underscore written and bookmark underscore v2 feature flags, even though they don't need to be implemented. Uh, ZFS knows that it can still read those pools and won't reject them anymore. And uh, you can also set hint.dev.whatever.disabled uh, so the Lua lower can prevent dry, uh, devices attaching uh, during boot. So if uh, a driver panics your system during boot or something, there's something you can do in the bootloader to turn that off. Mm, to exclude it. So that you can at least uh, get running and, and fix the problem and so on. Okay. In general, it's it's mostly just minor updates uh, and bringing back a couple of features and stuff that's been worked on. Uh, you know, if you want all the really cool stuff, you're going to have to wait for... Uh, 13.1, which I think will be getting underway shortly. Yep, they're working on that. So thanks Speaking to all of the. 13. <laughs> yep. There is something 13 ish in our next item, which is in the news roundup this week. We have TrueNAS 12.0 update 7 and also TrueNAS 13.0 begins. Ooh. Okay, so this article from iX Systems reads uh, on the blog, the TrueNAS 12.0 Update 7 was released today and is, uh, well, that was the beginning of the month, but still fresh, and is recommended for even the most conservative users of FreeNAS, TrueNAS Core, and TrueNAS Enterprise. It will ship by default on all new TrueNAS systems. Assuming no unforeseen issues, U7 is likely to be the last of the TrueNAS 12.0 updates as TrueNAS 13 begins its development lifecycle. TrueNAS 12.0 has been very successful and over 85% of FreeNAS 11.3 users have already upgraded to TrueNAS Core. TrueNAS 12.0 has now exceeded 2 exabytes of data. That's 2 exabytes EB under management and is growing at the astounding rate of 1 exabytes every, or 1 exabyte every 6 months. So think about that. That's a lot of storage. Uh, first, they're doing a little bit of a TrueNAS 12.0 retrospective, uh, like looking back over the 12.0 release cycle. They created a new uh, lifecycle model for TrueNAS Core and Enterprise releases. The history of TrueNAS releases has been that TrueNAS 12.0 release was made available in October 20, 2020, and included many new features and performance enhancements, along with OpenZFS 2.0 support and a major OS update to 12.2 FreeBSD, which also broadened the hardware compatibility. Then there came Update 1, which was released in December, which resolved the most significant bugs from, you know, a major release and enabled the features like fusion pools and efficient scrubbing and resilvering. Then there was Update 2, which was released in February and included bug fixes with some minor features. I guess we can skip over those because uh, we're looking into a 13 now. So if you want to look at the previous releases, they're in the uh, iX Systems blog post here, but let's look at the I think the, the biggest uh, thing to know here is uh, with 12.0 U7 is currently running OpenZFS 2.0.6. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. Whereas 13.0 is going to ship with OpenZFS 2.1.1. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the next planned release after the 12.0 U7 is TrueNAS 13. 
and will include some major component upgrades which will offer new features, performance improvements, bug fixes, and security improvements. Uh, the major components uh, will include FreeBSD 13 Stable, OpenBSD, uh, OpenBSD, OpenZFS 2.1.1, and Samba 4.15. So there, TrueNAS 13.0 will primarily be focused on its role as a very stable enterprise-grade storage, and there will be a very few web UI changes. TrueNAS 13.0 Nightlies will begin this month, and the beta will start early in 2020. There will be an additional information provided prior to the beta, and they look forward to working with the community to make this a smooth release and upgrade. So they say that True Command 2.0 is the single pane of glass management platform. TrueNAS 12.0 Scale and TrueNAS 13 include support for True Command, uh, Docker or virtual machine, and True Command Cloud, which is a SAS version uh, that includes a VPN compatibility for managing across private networks. And True Command 2.0 includes a storage navigation of datasets, file access, or files across multiple uh, NAS systems. So if you have multiple ones in your uh, basement, shed, or enterprise, uh, then you can all look at them in one uh, interface. Real-time per-second statistics, role-based and team-based access controls, so RBAC, uh, are there so you can make sure that the people who should access can access and those who shouldn't can't tracking and reporting inventory with serial numbers and support status so there's a little bit picture and look at the uh, blog post if you're interested in that uh the new version out and uh they're going to be getting up to freebsd 13 uh for trunas core and trunas enterprise uh early in uh, 2022 mm -hmm. great then we have a story from Chris Seibman, a bit of what Unix system preboot environments used to look like. On his yeah, blog. so Unix was first implemented on general purpose computers that hadn't been specifically designed for Unix, such as the PDP-11 and the DEC VAX. These machines could have intricate startup procedures, uh, well, there's some links there we're checking out, and in any case, their preboot environment wasn't designed for Unix specifically. This changed in the early 1980s when computers both got more complex and began to be designed specifically for Unix, such as the Sun-1. Uh, these Unix computers, designed and built by Unix vendors who integrated their hardware and their Unix, soon got increasingly sophisticated and Unix-specific preboot environments. The most well-known and commonly uh, experienced of those Unix machine preboot environments is probably Sun's OpenBoot, which later became open firmware. Broadly speaking, this pre-boot firmware tended to have three jobs. First, it had to configure and bring up the low-level hardware, doing things like booting the CPU, enabling the RAM with refresh, and any other basic hardware setup and work required. Often the firmware would also do power on self-tests, uh, sometimes very time-consuming ones. You know, some SGI servers that we used could take five minutes to complete this phase of the boot, and were probably uh, and they weren't particularly big servers even. Um, second, the firmware loaded and started the vendor's Unix kernel itself, possibly passing various hardware information to that kernel. In the height of the Unix era, this was a complex job. The kernel could be found uh, in any number of devices, and it could have to be read in from there. Uh, from a Unix file system, uh, when it was on a local disk, might have different default arguments or a different default name, and you could uh, be network booting the machine, which required even more, you know, configuring the Ethernet hardware and talking a protocol like BootP or DHCP. 
a little aside here. As part of being able to read the kernel from disk, the firmware naturally understood how Unix vendors chose to implement disk slices and partitioning. There was no standard for this, although I think there were some common approaches inherent from the historic Unix variants that the vendor's Unixes were derived from. The broad third job of the firmware was debugging the kernel, including forcing a reboot when it hung. You know, most Unix machines let you break into a firmware debugger from the console while the system was running, which would let you poke around at machine state and even uh, force a crash dump. My memory is that crash dumps called the kernel to do the actual work, but they may have been a firmware that could write out memory to a designated disk area on its own without needing the kernel. On Unix workstations, the firmware typically could work with a graphical display to write text over top of your windowing session. Unix workstations typically didn't have the separation between text mode and graphics mode that you know an x86 PC wound up uh, having in the end. Although all Unix firmware was capable of booting on its own, if you set, uh, if you let it sit and had set it up right, it generally gave you a command line environment where you could break into, or, or one that you could break into, to change things uh, like what would be booted and from where. On workstations, the Unix firmware would uh, generally talk to either or both of the hardware console and a serial connection. <clears throat> on servers, which in the era were headless without video output, uh, the firmware only talked to the serial interface. Naturally, you could configure the baud rate and so on in this, uh, for the serial interface in these firmware settings. The firmware settings tend to be represented in some form of environment variables. I believe that some of the modern uh, FreeBSDs have x86 second stage boot environments that are broadly similar to the old Unix firmware environment, uh, such as OpenBSD's boot 8 and the FreeBSD boot process. Yeah, the number of stages in the x86 boot process on FreeBSD is kind of humorous and resulted in a, an entire like 2000 word uh, paper I wrote. <laughs> and it doesn't even go into that much detail about it. Um, the x86 PC BIOS does the same job of early hardware initialization that Unix uh, pre-boot firmwares did, but its traditional way of booting things uh, is much more primitive, although also much more general. And obviously, PC BIOSes haven't tended to offer command lines. Instead, they had some kind of graphical, uh, in air quotes, uh, user interface, uh, first using textbook graphics, then later real pixel graphics. While modern UEFI BIOSes have many of these general features of Unix firmware, such as firmware variables, uh, extensive firmware services, loading the operating system or the next stage bootloader from a real file system, uh, but they still don't have the same command line uh, or kind of full bore support for serial consoles that Unix firmwares tend to have. Sometimes you get an EFI shell, but it usually is quite limited. Yeah, can't uh, do much there if you don't know what to do. Yep, and then lastly, he says, uh, this whole article was inspired from an old question on the Fediverse. Uh, for the curious, there are videos of old Unix hardware booting up and the old firmware manuals are online. Mm -hmm. And since we're already on old computers, we should uh, cover our last article here, which is run Unix on microcontrollers with PDP-11 emulator over at hackaday.com. And they write there that C and C++ are powerful tools, but not everyone has the patience or enough semicolons to use them all the time. For a lot of us, the preference is for something a little higher level than C. While Python is arguably more straightforward, sometimes the best choice is to work within a full-fledged operating system, even if it's on a microcontroller. For that, Chloe Lunn uh, decided to port Unix to several popular microcontrollers. 
because why not? This is an implementation of the PDP-11 minicomputer running a Unix-based operating system as an emulator. The PDP-11 was a popular minicomputer platform from the 70s until the early 90s, which influenced a lot of computer and operating system design in its time. So Chloe's emulator runs on the SAMD51, SAMD21, Teensy 4.1, and any Arduino Mega, and is also easily portable to any other microcontrollers. Right now, it's able to boot and run Unix, but is currently missing support for some interfaces and other hardware. And so Chloe reports that performance on some of the less capable microcontrollers is not great, but that it does run perfectly on the Teensy and the SAMD51. This isn't the first time that someone has felt the need to port Unix to something small. We featured a build before which uses the same PDB-11 implementation on a 32-bit STM32 microcontroller. Wow. Unix yeah, is alive. Yeah, we talked about that one before. <laughs> the uh, When they call it, it was like LightBSD and then there was another one. There was one that was BSD 2.11 and one that was BSD 4.2 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, could, could very well be. So yeah, great feat of engineering. We also have Beastie Bits for you, and one that is just one, but this is nevertheless important. So BSDCAN 2022 is a go. They plan to have this again as a in-person conference, even though it doesn't seem be like this at the moment. It's still six months out from where we are. Well, obviously, uh, when Dan posted this a couple of weeks ago, things were looking a little better than they are today, but we hope things will get Look better again. Uh, um, so there's some warnings here. It says, warning, uh, we are monitoring restrictions imposed upon travel and events with respect to COVID-19. While we hope that we can meet in person, circumstances can change quickly. We will be uh, following the recommendations of local, provincial, and federal health organizations. For example, be prepared to wear a mask at all times within the conference if that is the recommendation. There will be zero tolerance for not following these guidelines. Uh, and we ask you to agree to things we don't know yet. Uh, but we're reasonable, you're reasonable, and we'll figure out a way uh, and we'll all be happy. Uh, and there's a highlighted section that, you know, over the last couple of years, just in general, without COVID, um, the requirements for entering Canada have changed a bit with the electronic travel authorization and so on. But then with COVID, it's gotten worse, uh, including the mandatory use of ArriveCan, which is a, a cell phone app you can get that allows you to deliver your proof of vaccination and other requirement required documents before uh, you arrive at the border so that, you know, basically you can be pre-approved so that you don't end up stuck at the border in Canada if uh, something isn't accepted and so on. Yeah, so you know uh, before you a, get on a plane. Yeah, they have a link to a travel page uh, that covers. And yes, uh, like to that point, mostly airlines will require you to show them the authorization before they get you on the plane because the yeah. government will find the the airline if they drop you off in Canada when you're not allowed to come in. Yeah, exactly. So when is this thing? Uh, June 3rd? June 1st to 4th, basically. Uh, so yeah. the conference is June 3rd and 4th, but there's the tutorials and the developer summits and so on on the 1st and 2nd. This is the familiar format for the people who've been there in the past. And they are looking for proposals for talks and workshops or tutorials. So that's been running for a while. So they started on December 1st, uh, went a bit late, but it's still running at the point of this recording. And you can submit your talk uh, until the January 19th deadline. So that's where you should not waste time. Um, they're also looking for um, volunteers, especially if uh, we do end up having an in-person conference. There will be a lot of people who won't be able to make it. And we'd like to the streaming to be... Uh, 
high quality again. Uh, and that requires uh, a couple of volunteers per track. And then if we end up with two or three tracks, it very quickly means uh, a lot of people uh, needed to keep the streams running and, and keep things on track. Yeah, exactly. So consider BSD can. We'll be watching this as well since we're also interested in uh, attending in one way or the other. So you can also get updates this way. But don't waste time. Submit your talk. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarstamp. Head over to tarstamp.com slash BSD Now and start backing up your machine. So Tarstamp was designed originally uh, because Colin wanted to back up his laptop even while he was on the road. The problem with backing up your laptop on the road with traditional backups is that A, you don't necessarily trust the network you're connected to to be backing up your sensitive data, and B, you only have you know access to the free Wi-Fi or whatever. You can't upload a lot of data. So uh, Tarstamp is designed to segment and deduplicate your data locally uh, and then compress it to make as little uh, amount of data as possible that contains all the changes since your last backup and ship those off to Tarstamp. And it encrypts them all with the keys that you provide on your machine uh, so that nobody's sniffing on the network and nobody uh, who takes over Tarsnap servers in the cloud or, you know, uh, arrests Colin and tries to force him to do stuff can ever read your, your files because only you have the key. So, you know, it's a feature that you can, if you lose the key on purpose, uh, none of that data can ever be restored. So don't lose the key by accident because you're in the same situation as if you did it on purpose, the data is useless. Uh, but that's a feature, right? It's the only way to be paranoid and sure that no one else can read your backup is that this is the only key that can decrypt this backup and I have to not lose it. And I have to not let anybody else have it. And that's all there is to it. And uh, Tarsnap will be secure. Um, and they give you the source code for the client so you can prove that it does exactly uh, what they say it does. And you can compile it yourself, but you don't have to. It's available in the package manager of literally every OS uh, that we could think of. Uh, and it's very portable code if there's some OS we couldn't think of. And the best part is it's pay-as-you-go. So you put in money and you start doing backups uh, and you get alerts when you're running out of money. Uh, you can never get uh, a bill from Tarstamp. All you get is a tax receipt. Uh, if, you had to, if you're Canadian, you have to pay sales tax. Uh, but it comes as part of the deposit. But it means unlike other cloud providers, you can't get a surprise bill when you backed up more than you thought you were going to or something. Uh, Tarsnap will never use more money than you put into it. Uh, and therefore, you always have that control over how much money gets spent on your backups. Uh, the number one rule with Tarsnap is start using it. It can't help you if you don't use it. Normally, we would have a nice collection of uh, feedback and questions here at this point. But since it's the beginning of the year, we're running a bit dry. So uh, in 2020, you can make a good year's New Year's resolution to send us 2020, some feedback. Huh? Oh, right. <laughs> I, I'm not uh, I agree. It year. still feels like it should be 2020. <laughs> but it is, in fact, 2022. Somehow, parts of me are stuck in there. Yeah, in 2020 back. Okay. So in 2022, make a New Year resolution to at least submit one question to BSD now. Wouldn't that be great? Um, <laughs> anything you always wanted to know about a problem you have in computing, in BSD in particular, uh, any other thing you always uh, wanted to send us but didn't send a reply uh, just yet because your send button is stuck or whatever. And then we'll have something to fill this uh, void that we have now in this part of the episode. So I guess we'll cut this episode a bit short than usual. 
and then you have uh, time to write us something. 